How are we this morning? Good. We're going to pray one more time because we love to pray around here. And then we're going to dive into Mark chapter 3. I almost threw you guys a curveball. I almost said Matthew. We're definitely not going to go to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. And we're going to pray one more time. Father, we are desperate for you this morning. And Lord, I mean that with... With everything that I am, God, we're, we're desperate to know you. We're desperate to see you. God, we're desperate to be known by you. And God, we affirm and we acknowledge this morning, God, that if you don't open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear and open our hearts to receive, God, Lord, we will miss it. We need you, Lord, and we trust today, God, that your scriptures, that your word is sufficient. Your word tells us, God, that all that we need, it contains all that we need for life and godliness. So today, God, we center in on the text. God, speak to us from it. Transform our lives. Do in our hearts what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, we trust you. And that's why we gather, Lord, because we believe you will say something to your people. So God, we just offer this time to you in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody together said, Amen. Okay, just to give you a recap, last week was Easter, um, and, and we had an Easter kind of focused, stand-alone sermon. But today, um, I, we're, we're going to dive back into Mark chapter 3, and I want to recap for just a minute kind of where we were and what we've done. So Mark chapter 3, up to this point, we've seen Jesus, he's had a few run-in with the Pharisees, and, and we, the Herodians even got in on it. Pretty much anybody in town who had any power, any authority, were kind of just either mocking Jesus or just pressing on Jesus, like, Jesus, are you really who you say you are? Jesus, why are you doing this stuff? You're, it's not lawful, you're healing on the Sabbath, you're doing all these things that we don't like. But something else also is kind of happening, running parallel with that. At the same time, Jesus is building a following. There are people who begin to follow after Jesus. There's people who begin to, to, to kind of crowd up, if you will. And everywhere Jesus goes now, he's acknowledged as he's, he's kind of the, the, the healer, right? The one who can cast out demons. He's the one that can make a withered hand whole. This Jesus, man, I want to follow him because he's kind of doing some cool stuff. And at this point, what I want you to see, and we'll see it in a few minutes, he's kind of, the kind of followers that are surrounding Jesus right now are those guys and girls that would kind of like leap into a VW van and like just follow the band all over the country because they're super cool, right? I know, I'm sure there's nobody in here, right? But there are some, I know you, love you. But that's kind of followers that Jesus has at this point. People who are like, man, Jesus is super cool. Jesus is doing a new thing. He's probably going to overthrow Rome. And he's making the, the Pharisees look kind of stupid. We like him. So we're going to follow this guy. And what I want you to see today as we walk through this, that Jesus, for us, for you and I, that's not what followership is about. It's not just because Jesus is super cool and he gives out good gifts and, and he's patient with us. There's a, a depth to following Christ that I want us to see together. And I'm about to, I was literally almost jumping two notes. So let's start back over. Mark 3, 7 through 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples up to this point. Jesus has gathered a crowd. So much so that the Herodians and even 
the Pharisees spoke of a way and began to meet together thinking about how they could destroy Jesus. And that's where we come into the story today. There's a group of people who want him dead. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, Edomia, and beyond the Jordan. It came from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. I want to show you something real quick before we move on. There was a reason that Jesus withdrew, and there's a spiritual emphasis and there's a practical emphasis, because I want you to see it in the Word. Number one, it wasn't time for Jesus to have the big theological conflict. And that day was coming. It wasn't time for Jesus and the, and the Pharisees to square toe-to-toe in such a way that it meant that he was going to die. Why? Because it wasn't his time for death. There was years of ministry ahead of him. There was discipleship to take place. There was more miracles to be done. There was an establishment of His divinity that had to take place, that Christ is the King, He is the Messiah, He is the one who who He says He is and who Scripture has been screaming about for years and years and years. So at this point where the discussion gets superheated, Jesus is like, I'm just going to withdraw. It's not my time to die. It's not my time to get in a conflict in such a way that it's going to cause me death. I have to withdraw. He knew the plan of God for His life. And the people were pressing on him. I want you to see this. In the verse that we just read where it said a great crowd followed him, heard all that he was doing, they came to him. The word there in the original language, I'm going to butcher this, but we'll go for it. Ep-e-pip-tu. Ep-e-pip-tu. It means to fall on. People were so desperate to get to Jesus because of what he had to offer at that time that people were literally throwing themselves on him. The the word here, the idea here is this violent idea of a crowd just kind of throwing themselves towards Jesus. It didn't really matter who they hurt. It didn't really matter who they trampled. They just wanted the goods that Jesus had. And this is important because Jesus' primary reason, I want you to see this, His primary purpose for coming to the planet, to coming to earth, was not just to heal people. It wasn't just to get in religious debates. The primary purpose of Christ Jesus coming to the world was to be the substitutionary atonement for your and my sin. So while it was good that Jesus was healing people, it was good that Jesus was pouring out blessing, it was good that Jesus was doing miracles, that was not the primary purpose of His visit to earth. The primary purpose of Jesus' visit to earth was to die for sinners. And Jesus knew it. That's why, man, I have to withdraw. But Jesus, there's more people to heal. There's more people to to, to transform. There's more demons to cast out. I have to withdraw for a minute. He wasn't going to let the conflict escalate to a point to where he died. Because it wasn't time. There was still more to be done. Verse 9 and 10 says, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Remember what I said? They were just kind of throwing themselves on Jesus. 
For he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Can you imagine the crowd? And the only thing that the only thing that I can think about, I remember, I remember watching a documentary. I like documentaries and I like uh, music. So I've watched an Elvis documentary. I'll confess that to you guys. I've watched an Elvis documentary. And I remember in black and white footage at my grandmother's house watching this documentary of Elvis taking the stage and the ladies just lost their minds. I don't know if anybody had that Elvis life. I don't know. You don't have to confess that today. But I, I remember watching this guy come on stage with jet black hair and, and looked super cool and had all these rhinestone outfits, super awesome. And people would literally just start crying, shaking and crying They're in the presence of Elvis. And I think about what it must have been like at this moment for Jesus because it was that times ten. You think about it, this guy didn't just sing some songs that, that made you feel some sort of way. He didn't just like, he didn't just wasn't some attractive guy. The Bible actually says Jesus wasn't attractive at all. He was kind of ugly. So it really was. They, they thought, man, if I could just touch this guy. And ancient Middle Eastern literature would tell us that people really thought that healers, if you could just get close to them and touch them, then you would be healed. So that's what all these people were thinking. They didn't want to get to know Jesus. They didn't care really about who Jesus was. They just thought that he had the fix to their problem. I mean, for me, when I read this story, when I begin to sit with Mark chapter 3 and really just digest and, 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 and work over it, the thing that I thought, the thing that kept pressing on me is, man, how many times have I pressed in on Jesus? How many times have I ran and fell on Jesus, not because I delight in Him, not because He is Lord, not because He is faithful, not because of who He is, only because of what He has to offer? It was an indictment on my own faith at times when I read this chapter. I thought, man, there's been so many times in my faith walk that I didn't really care to hear from God. I, I didn't really care who Jesus was in that moment. I just wanted him to get me out of trouble. Anybody else been there? I remember those prayers in my life. I'm like, Jesus, I need you right now. And it had nothing to do with how awesome Jesus was or how much I loved him. I just wanted to get out of jail free card. I just needed a pass. I just needed him to clean up my mess. And the crowd pressed in on Christ more and more and more. And they were beside themselves because of what he had to offer. See, we, we know that's true, that they really didn't care about who Jesus was. They didn't really care to get to know him and really follow him. I mean, it says multiple times, the great crowd followed Jesus. The great crowd pressed in on Jesus. The great crowd followed Jesus. But Christ goes to the cross and they're nowhere to be found. You would think, when I read the text, I would think the man with the withered hand stands up at the crucifixion and says, Wait, remember he healed my hand, he's for real. You would think the, the woman with the issue of blood who Christ healed would stand up and say, wait, 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 remember, uh, no doctor could heal me for, for years and years, but Jesus healed me. All these miracles that Christ did and at the cross, they disappeared. Except Mary, some ladies, and John. Even the disciples bailed on him. 
And for me in my heart, I'm like, well, why do I follow Jesus? What does following Jesus look like? I mean, what does it look like to really surrender my life and follow Jesus if it's not just to be there and kind of like with my hand held out hoping he drops some kind of manna from heaven in it? How am I supposed to follow? What does followership really look like? I want to give it to you. Four things. If you're taking notes this morning, jot this down. Number one, repent. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I'm going to give you four really quick things. Because the crowd here, the motive of the crowd, the pulse of the crowd, did not reflect the heart of a real believer. God wants to author in our lives. I'll say this before we move on to repent. God wants to author in our lives a faith that says, if you heal me or if you don't heal me, I'll follow you. God wants to author a faith in our life that is so rooted in the cross of Christ and so rooted in who He is that we say, if you bless me or if you don't bless me, I will follow you. God wants to author in our lives a Job-like faith that says, yet though you slay me, I will trust you. But what we see in the text is a crowd that was only there for the mountaintop experience. They were only there for the good times, and they were only there for the party. And that is not the kind of faith that withstands turmoil, trial, suffering, hardship. That is not the kind of faith that walks us through life. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Number one, repent. Mark 1.15 says, The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Listen, repent is that church word that we often use. It really just means to turn around. Whatever direction you're going, wherever you're heading in life, if it's not Christ-centered, if it's not Christ-focused, turn around. That's the appeal that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 through 19. He makes it in Mark 1.15. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is saying, hey, if you're not fulfilled, if you know that you're spiritually dead, if you need life, repent. Turn and follow me. And oftentimes when we use the word repent in church, it gives this negative connotation, this negative idea, because a lot of times it's come out of preachers' mouths that follow up with something like, Repent! Turn or burn! Right? You've heard those kind of phrases. You see people holding those kind of signs. In our generation, it's usually this weighty, heavy feeling that when we say the word repent, but I want you to hear Acts chapter 3, 19. He says, repent and be converted. Therefore, so your sins might be blotted out. And times of refreshing can come in the presence of the Lord. I want, do you feel the attitude as he uses the word repent there? It's not some overbearing indictment. It's not some condemnation, some some weighty, nasty word. He's saying, listen, repent and be converted so that your sins can be blotted out. And times of refreshing can come in the presence of the Lord. This is what the writer of Acts is telling us. Listen, guys, I want you to be refreshed. I want you to be joyful. I want you to live a life of vitality. Like, I want you to know how to be happy in God. It starts with repentance. Repent. Turn to Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. Repent. 
repent. It carries with it this weight of joy. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are moments of heaviness when we sin and we fail and we know, oh man, I've blown it. I've truly messed up, truly failed God. But in those moments of repentance, it's one of my favorite pictures in the world. It's one of those moments that we feel like we've wandered from God. We feel like we've gone too far at times to repent. We feel like, what's the need? I'm going to stumble again. But hear me when I say this. Every single time we turn back to God, every time we turn to Him in repentance, when we turn around, He meets us right here. We think we've wandered too far. We think we've gone. We think maybe God's forgotten about us or He's, he's you know, not interested in our suffering or our plight or what we're walking through. And what we find is that the moment that we repent, the moment that we turn to God, He is face to face with us. He has a deep love and affection for His sons and daughters. And He invites your repentance. It's not this negative idea of, oh, I have to repent and I have to turn. No, it's this beautiful reality that when we do turn, we see Christ face to face and we are welcomed by His love. So we repent. It's part of following Jesus. Every person in all of Scripture who ever followed Jesus had to change course. The trajectory of their life had to shift. I mean, in a real sense, when he's walking through town and you're going to the grocery store and everybody's like, hey, there's Jesus. All right, that can wait. But in a spiritual sense, it's the same for you and I today. The trajectory of our lives, the, the aim of our affections and goals has to, at some point, if we are going to follow Christ, has to turn. We can't claim to know Christ and love Christ and our trajectory be as it, as it has always been. The destination be as, as it has always been. There has to be a shift. There has to be a turn. But followership isn't just about repentance. It's also about us forsaking. Luke 14.33 says, there, So therefore, one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. Another translation would read, so therefore anyone who is not willing to forsake it all means that you cannot be my disciple. So not only is this, uh, there this idea of turning, but there's also this idea in Scripture, this, this explicit idea that when we turn, whatever's behind us no longer clings to us, no longer weighs on us, no longer pulls us back. We forsake it all. You, you say, TJ, does that mean I have to quit my job and never have any hobbies? And Am I not allowed to go fishing or golfing anymore? Like if I have to forsake it all, right? Is that what the text is saying? No. What it means is that Everything is on the table. Everything's on the table. It means that everything in my life is up for grabs to God. I have to be willing to forsake it all. Comfort. Community. You say, hold on, TJ, God wants to walk in community. Absolutely, but we have missionaries right now who are from this church, who grew up here, who are living in other countries in the world, who feel absolutely alone and desolate so that they might win a community to Christ. 
To forsake it all means we push everything on the table and say, God, it's all yours. Now, I'm, I'm not telling you to, to quit your job. I'm not telling you to give up your hobbies. But I would like to ask you, if Christ called, would you answer? If Christ wanted you to go spend your life in another country overseas, or if Christ wanted you to take some big step, would you be able to push all things on the table and say, God, you can have any of it, and I'll give any of it up for your glory and for your good? Because that's where a follower has to live. Every disciple, say Judas, and, and they're not in the same category, Judas um, betrayed Christ, and John was spared martyrdom, but every other disciple came to a point to where their families, their jobs, their everything, man, their comfort, their safety, their income, and at the end of the day, every single one of their lives were on the table and said, God, I'll forsake it all. Every disciple died by martyrdom. And this followership isn't just about saying, man, Jesus is pretty cool and he, he makes religious people look kind of stupid a lot of times in Scripture, so I'm, I'm for that guy. I'm going to slap a bumper sticker on my car and give him a thumbs up. Jesus is my homeboy. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. No! It's about real repentance, turning from sin and aiming our lives at the gospel and at the cross, and it's about pushing everything on the table and saying, God, I will go. I'll give, I'll do, God, whatever you want. And the only way that anybody could ever do that is to embrace. Repent, forsake, and embrace. We embrace the cross. It confuses people sometimes. Because we've lived under a hundred years of, or at least 50 years of TV preachers telling us if we follow Jesus, everything's going to be perfect and roses, and you put $5 in the offering plate, and God's going to give you a, not only a prayer cloth, but $5,000 in your mailbox someday. It's the kind of gospel we've heard. It's deteriorated the reality of the gospel of the Bible. Because Jesus said, I want you to follow me, and then he literally went to a cross and died. I want you to follow me. I want you to be like me. I want you to follow me. By the way, my destination is the cross. Luke 14, 33, or Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Followership, real life followership of Christ. When we follow him, it's about embracing the cross. It's about identifying with Christ in our good times and in our bad times. Understanding that He authors salvation, He authors life, and we surrender our lives to the gospel. And Jesus told His disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If we, if we want to follow Christ, we have to embrace the cross. We have to repent. We have to be willing to forsake. It means we have to be willing to push everything on the table and say, God, you can have my comfort. 
You can have my preferences. You can have whatever you want. You can have my schedule. For some of you, that would be forsaking right there. For some of you, that would be an incredible step towards God. If you said, God, you know what? I'm not going to be the God of my schedule. I'm going to start my day in prayer. I'm going to get into the Word, and I'm going to give you my schedule for the week. I'm going to accomplish my task, right? I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to be a good steward at my job. I'm going to be responsible. But God, you can have my schedule. If you want to put somebody in my path I'm supposed to pray for, God, Lord, let them be more valuable than my schedule. Forsake and embrace the cross. And then delight. I put this one last because it's my favorite. The other ones are really difficult. <laughs> Can I just be transparent with you? It's difficult to repent. Because sometimes I really like the way I'm going. Sometimes I really like the direction my affections are heading. Sometimes I really like what I'm doing and what I'm about. And it's just difficult to turn around sometimes. And sometimes it's difficult to forsake things that I want to do for what Christ has called me to do. It's difficult. And it's difficult to embrace the cross. And all of its weightiness and all of its heaviness all of its brutality and what that means for my life. But if we repent and turn from our sin to follow Christ, if we forsake the world and say, Christ, I'm all in, whatever you want me, and if we embrace the cross, you know what comes easy sometimes? Delighting. Psalm 35, 9 says, Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord and exult in His salvation. Or instead of exult, delight. See, when I realized that my path and my way and the aim of my life at one point was sending me to a destruction apart from God, but by His grace, He called my name and gave me the wisdom and grace to turn around and see Him and follow Him, I can begin to delight. And no matter what I'm walking through, I can begin to delight, right? No matter how bad my day is. You say, today was a bad day. Well, our worst day was when we were living apart from Christ and heading to hell. That's like the worst day, right? It's a bad day. So if we repent, if we forsake, and if we embrace, it gives us perspective, perspective to live in delight. Man, today's kind of bad. But I've been redeemed. So it may be bad, but it's not my worst day. It also helps gives us per, give us perspective whenever things are going really good. Like, man, today was awesome. Today was, I was blessed at my job or I was blessed with my family. It was really awesome, but it's not, still not our best day. See, because if we've repented, if we've forsaken, if we've embraced the cross, then our best day is when we will see Him face to face. No fear, no insecurity, no sorrow, no pain. All shame wiped away in that moment. So listen, when we begin to follow Jesus, when we repent of our sin, when we forsake all that this world has to offer and go all in on Christ and we embrace the cross, it helps us delight in Him. And that's the difference. You had a crowd of people that were after Jesus who wanted what He had to offer in the moment but never stopped to delight in who he was. 
He was the king of kings. He was the alpha and the omega. My favorite phrase to say, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He was all that they needed. And they didn't even realize they were just settling for, for scraps from the table. A little healing of my withered hand. A little leprosy gone. They didn't realize that all those things were just sprinkles of who he was. Just a little taste of who he was. I want to ask you today, when we read the passages together, when we look into the gospel, have you given yourself room to delight in Christ? Have you just followed Christ for what he has to offer? Or have you taken the time to really repent? To really go all in with God? To truly embrace the cross? And allow him to author that delight. Acts called it refreshing. Repent and be converted, therefore, so your sins might be blotted out. And times of refreshing can come in the presence of the Lord. Do you need to be refreshed today? Do you need to feel delight? If you're anything like me, then you do. And the hope in that is that Christ is the only one that can give it. True joy, true delight. Don't settle for the crumbs this morning. Don't go to God just for handouts. Endeavor to know Him with your life and to be known by Him so that you might delight forever in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. God, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to think about what it means to follow you. And God, that it's so much more than, Lord, just hanging out with you on the mountaintops when things are good. It's so much more than just receiving a few things from your hand, a few blessings from your hand. God, it's really about delighting in who you are. And Father, I pray against that in the life of our church, in the life of those sitting here, God, in my own life, Lord, that we wouldn't be those who just throw ourselves on you in a moment of need, but God, Lord, that we would be near you and with you, pressing into you as faithful followers who are willing to give up our lives for the cause of the gospel. We want to delight, Lord. But we know to get to the light, we have to repent. We have to forsake. We have to embrace the cross. We want to delight. So God, my prayer for myself and God, all your sons and daughters sitting in the room this morning is that you teach us how to be happy in you. That you make our hearts glad in the gospel, Lord. Everything that I've preached, Lord, it's not going to happen. God, I know it's not going to happen because we just decide to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps or man up or woman up. It's going to happen because your Holy Spirit grabs a hold of us. So God, move today in spirit. Move in power. And do in our hearts, the power of your Holy Spirit, what we cannot do for ourselves. We love you, and we offer this time of response to you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.